and welcome back to Modern Medieval, the podcast. I'm Megan. And I'm Ello. And before we start on our subject for today, we wanted to just talk about a few headlines that we've seen that remind us of the medieval or ideas and notions related to the medieval. Why don't you start us off, Ello? So a few days ago, I don't know if everyone's seen this, but in Palermo in Sicily, there's been um, torrential, essentially torrential rain that came out of nowhere. And it was so bad that um, they had, there's been a couple of people who died. It, like the, the, the level of the water went up to, I think, four or five meters. Or maybe I'm exaggerating, but it was quite bad. And um, all of the tunnels had to be shut down. And, you know, it's very disastrous. And it kind of, for some reason, started reminding me of like natural disasters in the Middle Ages and the ways in which, you know, people were thinking about like the consequences of natural disasters and why they came about. And so Megan rightly pointed out that it's a sign, right? <laughs> yeah. It, uh, when you were talking about it, cause I hadn't seen it in the news. It made me think of the discussion that we had about revelation and the apocalypse and everything. And we were like, is this one of the seals of the apocalypse or is it not? Like, is it related to that? So we went to good old Google and had to look at what the seven seals of revelation are. So for those of you who don't know, quick run through and then we'll go back to Sicily. The first seal is the introduction of the Antichrist who rides onto the scene of, uh, as a rider of a white horse. This rider wears a crown and will deceive many with talks of peace, but he will wage war against the saints. Then the second seal is despite the promises of peace from the Antichrist, warfare. So warfare breaks out after the seal breaks and the red rider comes and slays a great number of people. The third seal is the rider on a black horse who spreads famine. The fourth seal is the pale horse of death who wipes out one fourth of the earth. The fifth seal is uh, those martyred will ask God how long until the judgment day. Uh, they'll told they'll have to wait, given a white robe. And then we get to the good old sixth seal, which is what Elo is gesturing to which is the catastrophic natural events that take place from a rattling earthquake, the sun turning black, the moon turning blood red, and mountains and islands disappearing so that they could disappear through floods. Yeah. And before we get back, just the final seal, the seventh seal, the good old classic seventh seal, which is silence fills heaven, reminiscent of the Sabbath day of rest God took on the seventh day after creation, and a brief pause occurs before the following judgments of Judgment Day. So scary if we're at the sixth seal <laughs> yeah I mean I also kind of think that like so Sicily's quite has been historically quite a superstitious um region and mm-hmm. so you know lots of saints it's quite catholic and so it kind of you know rang a bell especially because like Sicily as well has had a fair few um, natural disasters including earthquakes and um, of course lots of people know about the um volcanoes so you know it's not a, it's not a region where that's been you know spared so that's why it kind of came to mind thinking about how maybe they would deal with it in the past and what that would have meant i haven't really grown up in a society that's heavily superstitious or religious so there's not necess- i haven't experienced that kind of atmosphere before and another headline that was quite medieval and related to conversations that we've had throughout the weeks is the bubonic plague. So last week we mentioned how it was diagnosed in some people in China. Well, yesterday 
I received the headline that a Mongolian teen died of the bubonic plague. So a 15-year-old boy died in Western Mongolia of bubonic plague after eating an infected marmot, the country's health ministry announced. And Mm. his other friends, uh, two teens who also ate the infected marmot, are in the hospital. So that's unfortunate. (laughs) Um, One thing that I don't think we've mentioned a lot of the way that the bubonic plague still exists today is by eating infected animals, uh, wild animals. I believe I read a couple years ago that this couple ate an infected, it wasn't a rabbit. It was an animal that we might consider exotics, not the right word because that's othering, but it was something not quite like a bat, but it was something that you don't generally think you're going to eat but if you're out camping and all that I guess it makes sense because it's what's around there and they got the plague I don't think they died I could be wrong but they ate something like a marmot so don't eat wild things yeah just kind of thinking about that and our conversation on the zoonotic animals and thinking about how the coronavirus most likely came from a bat and all of that yeah don't (laughs) I'm a poet Uh, don't eat wild Mm. animals that are not normally cuisine also maybe just try to eat less animals in general for sure um so today we have it's a very exciting episode so Um, exciting we have our first guest jenna burris who studied with us at ucl and who's an absolute babe super smart and she's going to come and talk to us about Sleeping Beauty, Disney's 1959 modern medieval classic. (laughs) We're super excited about this, especially because it's such an iconic Disney film. And I think you guys will all enjoy it. Yeah, so sit back and get ready for us to get modern medieval. Listen well, all of you. The princess shall indeed grow in grace and beauty, beloved by all who know her. But before the sun sets on her sixteenth birthday, she shall prick her finger on the spindle of a spinning wheel and die. Oh no! Seize that creature! Stand back, you fool! Well, oh my god, that evil laugh. I wasn't expecting that. I'd forgotten about that. (laughs) (laughs) So, hello, here we are talking about Sleeping Beauty, Disney 1959. And joining us today is our good friend Janina. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be your first guest. Oh, oh. Thank you for agreeing to be our first guest. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> this is such an interesting topic. Um, so Janina is, uh, well, was in our class and she um, wrote an essay on Sleeping Beauty. So that's why she's here today. Yeah, exactly. Um, so before we get into our conversation about Sleeping Beauty, we want to kind of introduce you as a person. Janina, to our audience. (laughs) Um, So I guess starting off, since you're here on a podcast, it's about the modern and the medieval. Could you tell us a little bit about your experience with the medieval? 
Yeah, sure. So actually, in the beginning, I used to dislike medieval art because uh, you know how when you're being taught Renaissance and they, they're trying to foreground the achievements of Renaissance, they usually kind of compare it with whatever came before and the medieval art you had before and kind of point out all the ways in which it was kind of primitive and unsophisticated and, and how, how can you go on and like that. Mm -hmm. So the first time I, I think I started to see things a bit differently was when I took a course. So I did my undergrad um, at the University of Glasgow and I studied history of art there and I took a course on uh, the art of the Roman Empire. And when we got to Byzantine art and uh, mosaics in Ravenna and Hagia Sophia and things like that, um, if this would be considered medieval, medieval art at all, because obviously it's really early, mm -hmm. but it kind of opened my eyes to uh, the process of abstraction that went on. And it's not necessarily that the artists weren't talented, but, um, you know, it, it, I kind of felt that that kind of abstraction that you have in early medieval art is not, a, not that different from the abstraction we value in modern art. And then um, when we got to uh, UCL and studied uh, modern medieval, I realized that um, because this is something you talked about in uh, your first episode when um, you kind of talked about medievalisms. So I'm, my, my um, main interest is actually in um, post-war and contemporary art and uh, Andy Warhol and the media and popular culture. And I'm very interested in how art and um, kind of low culture and popular culture interact and how things uh, and artworks change meanings when they are repeated in different contexts so that's where my that's how I come I'm now interested in the medieval because um, uh, you definitely talked about how it's such a construction and it picks up meanings from different contexts and it gets repeated and reconstructed all the time and so much of those things are coming from pop culture so that's exactly where my academic interest lays and um, how I came to look at Disney as well. That's Wonderful. so cool. Um, I find it so cool as well because I feel like I, I, you know, wave with you. I like with the idea of the Byzantine. It's something I find interesting as well. Mm -hmm. So such a cool way of thinking about it. Um, so when choosing, so this was your first essay for Bob, right? Mm -hmm. So why did you choose this film for your research? So um, I guess I started off just very in a very basic way i was just thinking what comes to mind when i think about the medieval and i was thinking about castles and princesses and uh, fairy tales eventually mm -hmm. and i started to think about how when we think about fairy tales uh normally they have a middle ages backdrop and right. um yeah whenever you have knights and princesses and battles between good and evil there's kind of a castle in the background and kind of medieval things happening in the background and then I um, started to think, what, well, what kind of Middle Ages do these fairy tales uh, construct? And how, how, how does this affect the way we think of the medieval? Uh, and I, the reason why I looked at Disney is just because I think they're the most recognizable renditions of fairy tales in contemporary popular culture. So when I, uh, when I had to look at this, there was a study uh, which surveyed teenagers and children, and they actually thought that the Disney versions were the original. <laughs> and they, really? Yeah, so they, they weren't even aware that there's earlier literary sources because, uh, yeah, Disney's just everywhere. And um, Do you remember what study this was? Um, I'll have to check it out. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Um, so um, Sleeping Beauty is such an iconic 
Disney film in regard to that. So I think it was a great choice on your um, behalf. And I did some research preparing for us for today on kind of where Sleeping Beauty comes from, because growing up, I thought the same thing. I was like, this is a fairy tale, but that Disney is the, Disney knows that Disney is like telling these stories to a truth and actually found out that one of the origin stories for Sleeping Beauty comes from the Purse Forest epic of medieval romance. I don't know if you read about that at all in your research, Janina. Um, um, I did uh, find two earlier versions that are very interesting, but they're from the 17th and 19th century. Yeah. Was one of them Charles Perrault? Yeah. Yeah. And then Brothers Grimm was the other, perhaps? Oh, it was Hans Christian Andersen. Okay. I read the Perrault one and I was just like, oh, this did. is so gorish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Disney does a great job of taking these very dark uh, legends and myths and making them digestible for very young children. So, for example, the Purse Forest story is about Zelandine, a beautiful princess from Zealand. I don't know if that's like a fictional place or not, who is in love with a knight named Troilus from Royalville in Scotland. And one day she strangely falls asleep while spinning. And Troilus is like, I have to save her. I have to, you know, wake her up. And he is visited by Venus, Lucina, the goddess of childbirth, and Themis, the goddess of destiny. And they give him this like answer on how to wake her. And they say, when you pluck from the slit, the fruit that holds the cure, the girl will be healed. So us as adults, we kind of pick up on maybe what that is alluding to. Yeah. <laughs> and so he goes to the, the castle that she's asleep in and he, he kisses her on the lips and she's still asleep. And he's like, what's up? Why is this? <laughs> like true love's first kiss is false. And... Uh, so he's really frustrated and he's kind of like, you know, cursing the wind and Venus comes and she's like quite upset and she scolds him. And this is what she says, at least in the purse forest, you're all alone with this beautiful girl, the one you love above all others. And you don't lie with her. So he's trying to be, you know, very about consent and everything. And the story progresses where he does indeed lie with her and she wakes after giving birth to a child and it's oh. the child's first cry that wakes her. Disney definitely takes that down. And Beating the Beast, the Beast rapes her a few times in the original story. It's wow. like a Stockholm Syndrome thing. I th- found it fascinating how fairy tales uh, have been told differently through history. And according to what people thought about um, childhood and children. So, for example, in the 16th century, there were nearly uh, horror stories because children were thought to be born in sin and uh, in need of being tamed by, by adults. And then about in the 18th century, they turned into moral guidance stories where uh, children were seen as innocent, back then children were seen as being innocent and mm-hmm. unknowing and adults needed to educate them. And kind of, um, yeah, uh, along those lines with, with this um, unsettling versions of Sleeping Beauty. Uh, so the versions I came across was the Charles Perrault one in the 17th century. Mm-hmm. So that one has the prince's mother being punished by dancing in red hot shoes. And in the 19th century, Hans Christian Andersen tells the same story and calls, calls it the red shoes rather than Sleeping Beauty. And there the scene of vanity is punished by the loss of feet. Yeah, how tragic though, right? Like, <laughs> always has to be a thing about the mud, the mother and the daughter, new beauty yeah. versus old beauty, getting old, like that kind of thing. I kind of, when I was rewatching it, it was like, ah, oh, that that thing I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, I felt that's... bad for Maleficent quite a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah, though that's, it's very unfortunate. And it's, Janina, in your essay, you talk about how the medieval is shaped by the way that we, like, we see the world at that time. And it's a reflection. And how 1959 Disney is about community that in the pastoral and everything. And Maleficent as the individual is this very dark, demonic, well, not demonic, but the evil, the forces of darkness. Mm-hmm. And it's quite interesting to think about how now, I mean, starting in 2014, we had the Angelina Jolie Maleficent come out. And it's this yeah. reimagining of her. And going off what you were saying, Elo, the description, I'll just read it briefly off Google, is Maleficent is a kind-hearted fairy who is deceived by the love of her life, Stefan. Soon she places a curse on his daughter, Aurora, in order to exact revenge, which is... I had no idea that was... I mean, to be fair, I haven't watched Maleficent, but I had no idea that was the backstory. Yeah, and Stefan's Aurora's father, as it says there, but also in the the Disney version. I was wondering, Janina, if you just had any thoughts or if you've even seen Maleficent or... I did. I did see it a couple of years ago, but I, I, to be fair, I watched it for kind of to see how they changed the two D cartoon into mm-hmm. just how they three D the castle and and um, <laughs> I guess I watched it for for Angelina Jolie as well. But I think okay. it's not too surprising that they decided to reclaim her because, as you said, and when I watched the original version, I did feel for Maleficent, and in a way, she did feel like she was the most relatable character as well because she was in a way more complex than than everyone else really yeah. and uh, I guess because you, you touched a bit on uh, gender issues as well this you do you do get this idea that she's kind of being punished for wanting to be alone for not wanting a family for kind of being individualistic and all that and I'm not I'm not at all surprised that they decide to to reclaim her and kind of rewrite her story now at, during yeah during yeah. a specific time yeah it, um, I mean this being 1959 is at the peak of American post-World War II, nuclear family, live in the suburbs, <laughs> all of that. So now we definitely value much more the individual, especially the individual woman. Yeah. But it is kind of unfortunate still that Maleficent turns dark because she's spurned by a man. So there's <laughs> still that problem of reclaiming, but how do you reclaim? Yeah, it's like trying to be feminist, but then like kind of missing the point. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. But I love Angelina Jolie and Elle Fanning. I need to see the sequel, uh, Mistress of Evil. Um, So Janina, this kind of going back to your essay and what you talk about, a lot of what we were just mentioning kind of toes around the core of what your essay is, where you talk about the Gothic medieval and the Romantic medieval. And I was wondering if for our audience, you could briefly explain the difference between those two and then how that, of course, relates to the themes of good and bad dark and evil, light yeah, and good. Absolutely. So my main argument when it comes to how the Middle Ages are portrayed in Sleeping Beauty is that the film splits the Middle Ages into the Romantic medieval representing the good forces and the Gothic medieval representing the evil forces. And this helps with the fairy tales idea of good and evil and how they're in conflict and how good is supposed to win over evil. Um, so the, this distinction between the Romantic and Gothic medieval I find very useful and it was articulated by uh, David Matthews and he also argues that it's a fundamental dualism because it structures both scholarly and popular interpretations of the Middle Ages. So it goes something like this. 
the Gothic Middle Ages are uh, associated with pain, uh, evil, barbaric practices, and violence. These are the Dark Ages uh, that you guys talked about in your episode about Tarantino and how getting medieval means is basically associated, associated with torture. Uh, and this uh, idea emerged in the 16th century, and I, I'm pretty sure it had, this was the kind of the Renaissance, and I think it's kind of has to, has to do with what I said previously. I think they really tried to consciously move away from the medieval and calling it kind of dark, um, helped with kind of saying how great the present was and how enlightened they were during the Renaissance. Uh, and then the Romantic Middle Ages is a, a bit of a later construction, construction is emerged in the 18th century when the, um, there was an nostalgic revival uh, of there was a revival of interest in the medieval mm -hmm. and here we have um, knights in shining armor the damsel in distress romance and innocence and just this pre-industrial pastoral time and uh, usually when you get both you have the romantic medieval kind of keeping in check and suppressing the bad gothic medieval. And I kind of feel like this happens in Sleeping Beauty too. So the romantic medieval is glorified and it must be defined against the bad gothic medieval, which it has to fight and eventually eliminate in order, in order to thrive. Wow. That's great. That's so cool. Um, it kind of um, anticipated my question, which was um, if there were any symbols that illustrate this, but um, if there are any other symbols that you want to talk about, otherwise, given a yeah, thorough answer. Is, <laughs> uh, so basically, very straightforwardly, you would have um, the good medieval, the romantic medieval is kind of Sleeping Beauty's kingdom, and the bad one would be Maleficent. But right. it's there are a couple of interesting visual symbols that illustrate this, and the most significant one is the castle which mm -hmm. in the film is presented as a double, which I actually love because they, they actually look so similar if you look, if you look at them. And the right. architecture is quite similar. So you have Sleeping Beauty's romantic uh, fantasy castle and it's reverse Maleficent's castle, which is crumbling and it's a gothic horror castle. Yeah. Um, and as a side note, I think it's also quite interesting how these romantic medieval Disney castles are actually drawing from the 19th century ideal ideal of uh, the romantic medieval. So when we have the Sleeping Beauty castle, which is so famous because you have it in the Disney logo and you have it at mm -hmm. Disney World and Disneyland, but this is a this is modeled after a castle in Germany that was itself built in the 19th century, not in the Middle Ages. So this, it's interesting how we have these ideas of having a copy of a copy and yeah. what it means. That's so, um, that's so cool. Um, do you know the name of the castle or am I putting you on the spot again? <laughs> oh, I'll have to look it up. I, I'm I sorry. I keep doing I, this I'll to you. <laughs> I actually, um, I looked it up because you okay. had it in your essay, Janina. It's, oh gosh, it's German. So yeah, I apologize it's a hard for word. watching it. It's... <laughs> Neuschwanstein Castle. Where is it? It is in southern Bavaria. Okay. And it is a 19th century Romanesque revival palace on a rugged oh, hill oh. above the village of, oh God, Hohenschwangau near Fusen <laughs> and southwest Bavaria. And For our listeners, we'll have that in, in the notes so you yeah. can find it. <laughs> I apologize to any German speakers that I just butchered your language. And it's actually very late 19th century. So it started in September 1869 and opened in 1886. Oh, cool. Wow. Well, so, and it's so interesting how it's kind of masquerading as medieval. Yeah, yeah, it's it, true. And through Disney especially, it's become the like iconographic medieval castle. 
And it's a great example of just how ignorant we are of like what medieval actually looks like. It's so interesting as well, right? Because like this is uh, anachronistic at at its peak. And then it also kind of like we perpetuate because it's like something that we don't really associate with the present time. We just associate it with the past. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Jania, I had a question to kind of going off, you know, the romantic and the gothic and everything. And if you research this at all, because you kind of toe around it in your essay, but we always do more research than we end up producing. So the pastoral elements of Sleeping Beauty um, are by the great uh, Disney illustrator. um, I'm probably going to butcher his name as well. Avind Earl. Mm -hmm. And how he actually had a very modern, so 1950s modern view of mm-hmm. what the pastoral looked like in very subtly yet sharp uh, horizontal and vertical lines. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And especially in the forest, how there are square trees in the background. So there's yeah. this highly modernized tinge to this romantic medieval. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that or it was just there. <laughs> I- I absolutely love uh, how how he how he did all the backdrops and the and the square uh, trees and all that. Yeah, it does look very modern. I think it is the most medieval Disney fairy tale for uh, <laughs> for a couple of reasons, and one of one of it is that the designer actually specifically referenced medieval um, sources. So there's the tapestry in the beginning, and he specifically consulted the most celebrated 15th century French Gothic illuminated manuscript um, when it came when it comes to the procession of the medieval people but he also looked at um, there's a specific painting from the 1930s I think of a kind of of a modern art painting with Mm -hmm. thorns it's called an April something an April night or something like that and uh, he he referenced that when uh, when drawing Maleficent's domain so definitely he did look at, at modern art as well for sure that's so it's, it's a really nice symbiosis between uh, both both kind of sources. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this is my favorite Disney movie. It was oh, it growing is. up uh, and rewatching it the other day. Just how stunning the illustration is! Yeah. It, I mean, breathtaking. Yeah, it's true. Um, I was actually going to ask you, Janina. So in your essay, you talk about nostalgia, um, which is something we've discussed in class. But I think for the purpose of our audience, can you talk a bit more about nostalgia in relation to the idea of the Romantic Middle Ages? Yeah, sure. So um, I think it all has kind of going back to ideas of childhood and how we think of children. I think it very much has to do with that because we just um, talked about how much Disney polished the story. And uh, that's definitely to match how we think about childhood now so over the past century we've kind of been thinking about childhood as an entirely separate magical innocent ideal world filled with imagination Mm -hmm. and if you think about it kind of if you think about the romantic middle ages and sleeping beauty i feel like it's quite aligned to this idea of a world an innocent world full of happiness and emotional warmth and i feel this is where nostalgia comes in so Mm -hmm. We often feel nostalgic for a simpler, slower time. Right. Um, maybe the time of our childhood when things were not as complicated, more straightforward. There were clear borders, clear values. 
or we might feel nostalgic for a time when we had pastoral nature and maybe stronger communities, mm-hmm. or which is again really illustrated by the romantic medieval in the film. And right. my idea is that in the film, the romantic medieval represents things that we as modern people might be nostalgic for, like right. simplicity mm-hmm. and nature. Right. And the, maybe the Gothic medieval represents the bad aspects of modernity, like individualism and industrialism that we would maybe like to move away from. Yeah, and it kind of makes sense, right? Because like, there's been, in, you know, in more modern times, there've been quite a few revivals, and uh, this quest to like, you know, um, go back to the medieval in a way. Mm-hmm. And, like, um, what are they called? The when people dress up. Um, oh God, reenactors. Yes, exactly <laughs> that. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you. Um, That's yeah, great. And returning to like. The visuals, so since this is an audio format and we've talked about the castles and everything, are there other ways in Sleeping Beauty that this split or contrast between good and bad is depicted? Maybe through colors or costuming or any other character descriptions? Yeah, sure. So uh, more visual symbols, even if we go back to the castle, I mean, I I am talking about uh, nature and industrial and then communities and uh, individualism. But even if you go back to the castle and you're looking for visual cues, there's definitely the Sleeping Beauty castle is pink, always depicted in warm tones. Uh, bathed in sunset light and it, it just had it just has solid walls solid columns it looks perfect very mathematically constructed mm-hmm. and then if you look at Maleficent's castle it's absolutely ruined and fragmented uh, it's disintegrating the windows um, are left open uh, are left empty instead of having stained glass like the other castle and I feel like that's I found it really interesting that with Maleficent's castle, I felt like it's kind of more organic because there were kind of growing, ve- a bit of growing vegetation. I, I don't know, like the, the, the details were more organic, like mm-hmm. monsters and animals rather than having more mathematical, geometrical lines. And I got that idea of um, kind of seeing decay and ruins and just some very visual images of loss and putrefaction when it came to her castle. And there's also the thing with colors you just said. So you had warm colors, nice pinks with uh, Sleeping Beauty's castle, but then with Maleficent, there's the lime green and the purple and gray that are associated with uh, Disney villains. You notice it as a child or as a person watching it, but when you actually sit and think about it, it's so well done. And also just, so the castle's visually, you know, structured and then decayed, but also that just, the simple fact that pink and red and green are contrary colors on the color mm-hmm. wheel. They're actually completely opposite one another. And these are almost like eerie doppelgangers, which is a very gothic notion. Yeah. Uh, I mean, not complete because doppelgangers supposed to mean complete lookalike, but it's like a negative and a positive mirror image. And I'm going to put you on the spot, Janina and or Ello, <laughs> just because since I watched this so recently, I was thinking, so when Aurora pricks her finger and falls asleep, the solution of the three good um, fairies, Flora, Fauna, and Meriwether, is to put everyone else to sleep until mm. they solve the problem. The problem yeah. And as they are fairy dusting everyone to sleep, the colors go from the bright and vibrant into a very purple and green nighttime landscape that is actually kind of echoing Maleficent's greens and purples. And I was wondering if you just had any thoughts on that, like if 
they're kind of conversing with one another through colors or if something completely else is going on. Well, isn't it also like evil is often, like in literature at least, like evil and like the moment of action, the moment of sin, the moment of any kind of like misconduct is more likely to happen at night than it is at day. Everything is about like usually, I remember like, one of my lit classes that like a lot of like the action comes about in the evening so that could also refer to that kind of moment within the plot as well that's really interesting yeah I didn't think of that um Janina do you have any thoughts I guess there's definitely a dialogue between the kind of magic uh, both uh, Maleficent and then the other theories uh use because I do remember when they have some sort of fight of uh, I, I can't remember what Maleficent is fighting with, but then the fairies are turning, is it arrows? They're turning, they're turning them into flowers. Yeah. So in a way, they are set in a position, but at the same time, you know, Maleficent is a fairy and they do, they do mention that. And they do mention that, I guess they were supposed to be friends, but then everybody rejected her and she's the kind of evil fairy. But I do think they're not at all that different. And I guess that's the, that's what the, the, Maleficent, the Maleficent movie picks up on as well now. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. And yeah, sorry to put you on the spot. It was just something to me that I felt was very visually thinking and being aware of this quite compelling. It's almost as if darkness is descending, but it's being done by the action of the, the three grandmother fairies. So I just thought that was really... Uh, kind of thought-provoking and like also not the best solution one could argue to yeah. <laughs> solving the the problem of Aurora asleep in the tower. Uh, yeah also I kind of think it's really interesting as well like how Maleficent is also a fairy because you know obviously you have like three nice fairies and she's meant to be the evil one and it kind of shows you like the power that lies in the, in these fairies and what they can do and like maybe also complicates our view of you know the fairy godmother yeah well and also because the three good fairies who their names are very archetypal I mean Flora, Fauna, Meriwether so plants, animals and then the weather good good tidings uh, and then Maleficent has the negative association like mm-hmm. Thinking again of like the uh, Maleficarum, which is like about bad witches and everything. But she's also she's very tall and thin and almost larger than life sized. But then the flora, fauna, and Meriwether are these very short and maternal. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, So, and they have the wings, which is a huge telltale to their fairy status. But Maleficent just appears and disappears. And this great, you know, plume of crashing thunder and lightning and then the glowing, haunting yeah. green orb. Also, it's interesting because, like, the um, the three fairy godmothers are, like, very simplistic in the emotions that they feel. Like, yeah. it's kind of like a caricature. You know, the I don't remember the, the, the blue one. Um, Meriwether. Like, Meriwether, when she gets, like, all offended that she's not included in the tasks and she doesn't, she only gets to do the you know, the less appealing shit stuff to, you know, around the house. And then you have like Maleficent with like envy, jealousy, loneliness. <laughs> and you're like, oh my God. <laughs> and yeah. an interesting thing about Maleficent and kind of how she's constructed to be so evil. I mean, even when you mention names in the more, in the earlier versions, there were no names. There were just the three fairies. And it's a Disney thing to kind of give names and make them more human and I guess lovable. Uh, but with Maleficent, I found it really interesting that she's the first non-human Disney villain. 
I don't know what to make of, out of that. And I don't know, if it, I, I'll try to think whether this is a medieval thing because non-human, non-human is both a medieval and a postmodern anxiety, so to speak. But I found it really interesting that she's, she's supposed to be non-human, whereas the fairies, I guess, look very human. Yeah, yeah, that is actually very compelling, especially because, so prior to Sleeping Beauty, we had Snow White, the very first Disney film, and then Pinocchio. I mean, there were others interspersed, but Disney was very adamant of Sleeping Beauty being radically different than those. And Sleeping Beauty took six years to make because of Did the it? Mm-hmm. It was like I the long, and it almost bankrupt Disney. Uh, <laughs> he had to cut his staff after Sleeping Beauty from like 170 illustrators to like 70. It was this huge thing, and it's kind of considered a box office flunk because of all the money and energy put into it. But yeah, I, what you're saying, Janine, I mean, I'm just kind of thinking aloud. I don't necessarily have a concrete answer, but that is, there is something again about that. This is so set in the medieval. They keep saying that it's the, the 14th century. Mm-hmm. So they're giving us a time frame, whereas Pinocchio is in some kind of renaissance time, I think. Maybe it's medieval. I don't know. And then Snow Pinocchio White is... I think it's it's an Italian... I think it's 1617. I'll just check. Okay. Mm. I haven't watched that in a long time. But then Snow White is medieval, but it's also set kind of like a Seventh Seal non-time where yeah. there's a castle, there's the queen, there's the cottage, but it's very... Oh, and Cinderella was before this as well. And those are kind of the blanket romantic nostalgic middle ages but there's not the time frame whereas this is very specifically high middle ages 14th century and yeah so that like there's something i guess in making the villain non-human because that's medieval when you asked me about why i chose this movie Mm -hmm. there's actually a really nice uh fan-made timeline online i found kind of trying to set all the Disney films ever um, on a timeline. And um, I guess um, they kind of placed Snow White in the 1500s, which I guess would have does work for the medieval, although I think the costumes are a bit German 16th century, I, I don't know. But I think there are some more obvious medieval movies like The Sword in the Stone, uh, Robin Hood and The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Which and are The kind Black of- Cauldron. Oh, I, I haven't watched that one. But um, I guess I, I didn't go for those because they're not really fairy tales. They have, again, see those as well have more uh, modern literary sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, that's interesting when we think about how they drew um, from how, how they constructed the medieval. And yeah, as you said, it's kind of, I think it's kind of unusual for a Disney film to kind of set itself in time because Prince Philip does say to his father, um, you're living in the past. This is the 14th century. Yeah. So it, it is It is useful for us to have that specific century to work with. It, it helps so much. Yeah. But, and, I think, and I think the other princess uh, movies are set a bit later. I think Cinderella is 18th century. Pinocchio is 19th century. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Ello and I, in our research, we came across this really fun uh, blog from the Getty Historians, We'll have to share this with you all because it's given us a lot of thoughts, but it, it's a poll of 10 top medieval Disney films. Mm. And then they say like how and why and they rank it. So their criteria is historical references, evidence of source material for the plot and cues, art, architecture, music, costumes, and then the mythical or fantasy elements, supernatural beings, etc. 
So number 10 is Snow White. <laughs> Nine is The Black Cauldron, which is from 1985, where if you look at the, the font, it's very like Book of Kells. Uh, but they're like, we don't really know when this is. It's again in that no time. Eight is Aladdin, um, which is, they say, set anywhere from the 4th to the 18th century. So talk about a span of time. <laughs> Seven is The Emperor's New Groove, which is we think is very compelling because uh, we talked about this in Bob's class. Like We don't think of the medieval existing in non-Europe. Yeah. Uh, and it says to have been anywhere in the Incan ruled empire from the 1100s to the 1570s. Six B is Moana. Six A is Mulan. Five is the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Four is Brave. And three, they have three Sleeping Beauty. So you're in the top three. (laughs) (laughs) Two is the Sword in the Stone. So you mentioned that because it's Arthurian. So it again kind of has this time, non-time, but a general idea placement. And then number one they have is Robin Hood. So this is by historians, you know, you can agree or disagree, but it is quite interesting that the ones you were listing, just by thinking of the visuals, are in the top five. Yeah. Yeah. And as you said, I guess um, it's very much non-time or an alternative timeline or something, especially when you have animals in Robin Hood and yeah. things like that. It, it's, it sets it in a, in a kind of distinctive, distinct timeline, alternative timeline. Yeah. So thank you so much for all of this. This has been so interesting for us. I mean, you know, this is, this is exactly what we wanted to do. And it's a great way to like talk about this. Um, we were just wondering, what is your favorite medieval fact, if you have one? Um, so I love monsters. Right. I love medieval monsters um, in manuscripts or bestiaries or gargles as well. And uh, I know how you see some really, really weird things sometimes. And it's <laughs> so much fun to try and try and trace where those ideas come from. And you know how sometimes, because I, I did some research on monsters as well and uh, mm-hmm. ugliness. And it's quite interesting how I kind of wanted to look at things like unicorns or mermaids. And I discovered that, well, we had those since the antiquity. They're not really medieval, although they, they do appear in medieval manuscripts and things. So, and, and I guess it's, uh, you know, the same with, with gargoyles because you need to remember that well because uh, there's close to no authentic medieval gargoyles left because since they carry out water they rot so quickly Mm -hmm. and um what we see aren't even aren't uh, really medieval constructions they in most cases they're modern constructions so Mm -hmm. i love how with medieval things you don't know what you get you (laughs) things change meaning all the time and it's so fascinating try how, how they pick up meanings from different contexts and um, yeah, how these things change meaning is really interesting to me. Ah, that's wonderful. Amazing. Well, um, Janina, do you, for our audience, if they wanted to, you know, follow you in any way, do you have any platforms that you would want to share with our audience? <laughs> uh, hmm. Or dialogues? You don't have to, but oh, it's so, no. I, I should polish my Twitter if I if I <laughs> were to become an. an uh, kind of an expert in history <laughs> would be a good idea to start posting some content. Yeah, uh, so my Twitter handle is at Janina Beres, my name, which I guess will be spelled out. In the it will title. be. Yes, definitely. <laughs> okay. Great. Yeah, and so Janina, we normally kind of trumpet out at the end of an episode. <laughs> 
after we say where we can find ourselves. So if you can just hang on while we give our contact info, and then if you would join us in the trumpeting. So Ello, (laughs) why don't you start us off? Okay, so as you know, you can find us on Soundtrack. You can find us on Podbean or on Apple Podcast or on Spotify. All you have to do is type Modern Medieval Podcast. You can also find us on um, social media. Um, So you can find us on Facebook. There's a group called uh, Modern Medieval Podcast. Mm -hmm. You can find us on Instagram, podcast.modern.medieval. You can find us on Twitter, but I'm not really sure what that is. (laughs) We'll pass that on to Megan. (laughs) So yeah, our Twitter uh, is under Modern Medieval, the podcast. If you type that in, you should find us. But our handle is at medieval underscore modern. And then finally... We have the email for any thoughts, ideas, comments, questions, criticisms, modern.medieval.podcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you have, you know, ideas or like your favorite Disney movie that reminds you of like medieval scenery, please, please, please leave us a comment. Yes. And also, uh, we hate to, we're not begging, but we're kind of begging. Please comment, review us, (laughs) share us. Uh, because that allows us to raise and whatever the algorithms are so that we can reach more people (laughs) and get more people excited about the modern and the medieval. So that's it. Until next time, I'm Megan. I'm Ello. And this is Modern Medieval, the podcast. (laughs) 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 (laughs)